0: Chapter sixty of Kit and Kitty by Richard Doddridge Blackmore. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter sixty, Alive in Death. Downy Bullrag was indeed in trouble, not brought on by his evil deeds, as good people might have imagined, or at any rate not so caused directly, according to the present knowledge. Although in the end it proved otherwise. It had seemed an astonishing thing to me, considering his haughtiness and shrewd perception, that he should have deigned to expose himself to that quiet rebuff from Miss Coldpepper, and then that he had gone upon another quest of money, even more humiliating, showed that there must be some terrible strait, some crushing urgency in his affairs. He was not a man who lived extravagantly. He was rather of the mean and close-fisted order, "'even in his self-indulgence. "'From what had been said at Sam Henderson's dinner, "'it would seem that he had fallen into certain racing debts, "'but I could not believe that these were crippling him, "'for he generally managed to work them off "'and come out with a balance in his favor. "'But there was another thing in the background "'of which I had no knowledge yet, "'and when I speak of it now, "'it must be understood that I do so from later information.' That account in the Globe which a clergyman showed me had been followed by further particulars in the journals of the following day, and by one or two extracts from private letters brought to England by the Simon Pure. But the ships had been parted by a sudden gale, and after a very brief interview and some dispatches, which were not quite ready, had lost their chance of delivery. There was nothing of interest to me except what I had seen at first— and no letter from the captain to my wife arrived by post, which surprised me for the moment. But that was explained by the likelihood that he might have been hurried with official reports, while intending to send his private letters with them, and thus had lost the chance of dispatching either. And as any such letter must have missed its mark, there was no great disappointment. But the Simon Pure landed near Liverpool, as I came to know long afterwards, an unhappy and afflicted man, welcome to no person and to no place on the face of the habitable globe, an elderly man of great bodily strength and bulk of frame and large stature, he had better have gone beneath the earth, as the father of poets has it, than linger on it, lonesome, loathsome, shunned, abominated, and abhorred. His sins had been many and his merits few. He had lived for his own coarse pleasures only. He had never done good to man, woman, or child, yet he might have called any man worse than himself who refused to grieve for his awful grief, for this man was a leper. The captain of the Simon Pure was humane as well as resolute. This Spaniard, as he called himself, had lurked under a tarpaulin, till the boat of the Archytus was far away, and the gale began to whistle through the shrouds and chains, Then he came forth and showed himself, holding forth his hands, defying the sailors to throw him overboard. For a month he had been treated well by the crew of the exploring ship, who were all picked men of some education and ready to listen to reason. He had managed to quit them without their knowledge and cast his lot among a less enlightened crew. The boldest feared to touch him. But with nautical skill they uncoiled him in ropes from a distance and were just beginning their Yo! Heave! Ho! chant when the captain rushed up and dashed them right and left. With his own hand he unbound the leper and led him forward and allotted him a place on the forecastle where none might come near him except to bring him food and where he must abide if he cared to live. His chief desire was to get back to England and finding himself well in the way for that he indulged in strange antics, and shouted and roared as if all the ship belonged to him. When the moon was high, for the moon appears to have strange power over those outcasts, the sailors were afraid to keep the deck, with his wild songs flowing after them, for he had belonged to a colony of Indian lepers and had learned their poetry. As soon as the ship was in the mercy, he contrived to be quit of her, Perhaps he was afraid that his condition would be made known to the authorities who might find it in their duty to observe him, though they could not legally confine him. At any rate, he escaped any such trouble by dropping into a boat and landing on the south side of the river. A purse had been made for him by the sailors, not a very heavy one, for they were short of cash, but enough to carry him to London, at once the fountain and the cesspool of diseased humanity. Donovan Bulragh had been unable, after his recovery, to put up with the control and order of his mother's house in Kensington. He had taken private rooms again in a little street near Berkeley Square, and though his mother was not well pleased, she had now to contend with a will as strong as her own and even firmer. He must have his own way in this, he must be indulged at every cost, rather than driven to mutiny when all depended on him. If once he were married to Lady Clara, all would be wealth and prosperity. She had hoped to see it done ere now, but a wicked chance had crossed her. It was nearly twelve o'clock one night, towards the end of February, and Bullrag, having returned from his club much earlier than usual, was sitting by the fire in his dressing-gown with a cigar in his mouth and a bottle of very old cognac on the table. He was not in a pleasant humor— for the luck had been against him, and foreseeing worse, he had come away, for he was growing superstitious. He was dwelling gloomily on the dull necessity before him, the brilliant prospect, his mother called it, but he disliked his intended bride, and this good thing, alone perhaps, may be said in his favor, he was not wholly mercenary. I would fain hope, though without much faith, that he might have felt some true regret at the cruel wrong he had done me, for verily the expiation was nigh. Suddenly the front-door bell rang sharply, and the poor weary maid shuffled down the stairs. She had told him, when he came in that night, that a tall, strange-looking gentleman, with his face muffled in a white cravat, had called about nine o'clock and left word that he would come again that evening. He had given his name as Senor Diaz, and Bullrag, after wondering vainly, concluded that it must be someone connected with the sailor Miguel, whom he had seen in the autumn. Slow, heavy steps approached his door, and the maid was dismissed with some gruff words in a foreign language quite unknown to Donovan. Then the door was opened without a knock, and a big man stood and looked at him. Who are you, and what do you mean by coming at this time of night? Bullrag spoke in his roughest tone, for the man was shabby and repulsive. The visitor coolly took a chair, handling it in a particular manner, for he seemed to have bags on instead of gloves. Then he crossed a pair of gigantic legs, and Bullrag saw that he wore no boots, but loose slops of hide with a hair on, in size and shape much like the nose-bag of a horse. His hat was flapped over his ears and forehead, and he spoke not a word but gazed at Downey with large red eyes, having never a hair of lash or brow to shade them. Bullrag shuddered and drew his chair away. He had never been looked at like this and could not meet it. In the name of the devil, he could get no further, for the eyes of this monster and the strange formation under the cloth where his face should have been declared that he was laughing. You have learned to swear, Valadon, very good. The voice sounded dead through the mufflings, and the accent was not like an Englishman's. Chip of the old block, I was famous for that at your age, young man. What do you know of my age? Who are you? What are you? What brings you here at this time of night? What do you want me to do for you? Even Downy Bullrag was hurried and confused and lost his resources in the presence of this man, and a fearful idea made his blood run cold. "Ah, He knows me not. He is not a wise son. The stranger still kept his red eyes on him. Where is the voice of nature that I am compelled to introduce myself? Speak out. Do you mean to stop here all night? Don't cover your face up like a thief. In the name of God, who are you? The stranger slowly uncovered his face, sliding the bandage from his cheekbones downward with a clumsy movement of his bagged hands. Then he rose to his full height and stood before the gas, and looking no longer at Bulrag, waited to be looked at by him. His face was transformed into that of a lion. You must go to a hospital. Don't come near me. Pull it up again, for God's sake. It is God who has done it if there is a God. And why should a man be ashamed of it? Embrace your father, as the Frenchmen say. In a few years you will be like him. Don't you come near me. I tell you again, I have a revolver in this drawer. None of your pop-guns, but a heavy bullet. I don't want to hurt you if you will only go away. My son, I do not intend to go away. "'It grieves me to hear you speak of it. "'Surely you never would cast off your father "'for such a sweet trifle as leprosy.' "'Bolrag began to recover himself, "'which was more than most men of his years would have done. "'Nature had not endowed him with the largest head in London "'without putting something inside it. "'His sitting-room was small and plainly furnished, "'but having been used by convivial men,' It possessed a long table, now set against the wall, which would slide out to still greater length with levers. He drew this across the room, extended it, and closed the gap at the end with the one in common use. Then he threw up the window at his side of the room after fastening back the curtains, and requested his visitor throw up the other, for the house was a corner one and the room had cross-lights. "'Couldn't do it, my son. Would you like to see my hands?' "'No, very well, you must take them upon trust. "'I have three fingers left, but the spot is upon them. "'However, you are a brave fellow so far, though infected with popular ignorance, Nine out of ten would have rushed away shouting murder, "'but you may put away your shooting irons, as the Yankees call them. "'A hole in my body does more good than harm under the circumstances.' "'Once for all my complaint is not contagious, "'or at any rate not among well-fed people, "'and you are well-fed if ever anybody was. "'Give me a cigar. "'You will do that gladly of your own interest, I dare say. "'I can smoke it with my bandage on. "'Now a glass of good brandy. "'No water with it. "'You may break the glass afterwards, "'if you think proper, "'as the fools did on board the Simon Pure, "'but never on the Archytas. "'Ah, that was a ship of excellence. "'The Architus "'Do you mean to say you have been in her?' "'Without her and her glorious captain, my son, "'you would never have seen your beloved parent. "'And more than that, "'if there had not been a beautiful young lady "'on board that ship, "'I should never have been here. "'Ah, you may well be surprised to see me. "'If ever any man has been knocked about.' Seventeen wounds, I could count, till this affair took five away. "'And one of them laid me five years by the heels, "'laid me underground, it was said everywhere. "'I suppose you heard that I was dead?' "'Yes, on very good authority, too, "'but I was too young to know much about it. "'Do you know what has happened in the family? "'Ah, uh, the Spaniards are men for proverbs.' Believe no man dead till he comes and proves it. But women can always believe what they wish. Curse the women. She has caused all my troubles. But wait a little longer. The deep, thick voice and the glare of his father's eyes made Downey tremble. Surely you will not. In this condition, you will go to a hospital and get cured. You will leave the management of things to me. Will I? No doctor in the world can cure me or lengthen the months of my rotting away, and I got it by goodness, I took it by goodness. If I had stuck to my nature, I should have been sound. No more goodness for me in this world, and none in the next. Can a leper go to heaven? For a while they sat silent, the old man puffing his smoke through his muffler and lifting the glass between his great wrists every now and then, and the young man absorbed in this awful puzzle with his vast head drooping on his breast. It had never even crossed his mind to ask whether this man might be an impostor. He felt that every word was true, and now what possible course remained for him. At length his father spoke again. Come, cheer up, my hearty, as the sailors said to me, though they took care to say it a long way off. You don't seem delighted to have found a father and a man of such renown and rank. WHY, I AM THE MARQUISE OF TOROBEL, AND YOU ARE THE HEIR TO THE TITLE. LORD Roarmore DOESN'T SOUND MUCH AFTER THAT. BUT ALAS, I HAVE NOTHING TO KEEP UP THE TITLE, AND I DROPPED IT AMONG THE INDIANS. I SHALL HAVE TO TROUBLE YOU A LITTLE IN THAT WAY. ONE CANNOT LIVE ON GLORY, BUT THEY TREATED ME INFAMOUSLY WHEN I COULD DO NO MORE FOR THEM. They drove me across the Rio Negro into Patagonia and paid a tribe of the wandering Indians never to let me back again. They passed me on to the Maluchas, and I tried to make my escape from them, but was caught and left for dead again, till a woman took pity on me. Then I married her and lived on putrid fish with a roving horde of the eastern tribes in a terrible country where no white man goes. Then I took the disease from the diet and the nursing of my poor woman and her illness, and for five years I was shut up in the lepers' den, as they call the Reeking Peninsula, which explorers know as St. Jacob, at the back of a place called the Bottomless Pit. There was no getting out. There were thirty of us, sometimes more and sometimes less. Sometimes we got victuals and sometimes we starved, and I was the only white man there. Although we were quite close to the sea and almost surrounded by it, we were far away from all chance of ships in a desolate, barbarous coast in a curve a hundred leagues out of the line of traffic. And there I must have wasted into a sandy skeleton, for there was no possibility of escape inland unless a good angel had been sent to fetch me for the ship was taking soundings or something of that sort having come far away from the usual course to find the truth about the bottomless gulf and all I could do would have gone for nothing except for that young lady. They were giving us a wide berth as if we were all savages. Then luckily for me she brought her spyglass to bear and declared that she saw a white man among the rest THE OTHERS LAUGHED AT HER, FOR YOU MAY BE PRETTY SURE THAT THERE WAS NOT MUCH WHITE ABOUT ME JUST THEN, BUT SHE STUCK TO IT AND RAN FOR THE CAPTAIN AND INSISTED THAT A BOAT SHOULD BE SENT TO SEE ABOUT IT. OH, I COULD WORSHIP THAT GIRL, I COULD, THOUGH IT ISN'T MUCH GOOD TO ME AFTER ALL. COME, YOU OUGHT TO SAY YOU WILL TAKE CARE THAT IT IS AND DEVOTE ALL YOUR DAYS AND YOUR MONEY TO THE WELFARE OF YOUR PERSECUTED PARENT. You must have expected me long ago, at any rate, some hopes of it. For I sent you a message several years ago, and some documents, too, from Mendoza, before I was banished finally. A knockabout fellow swore to find all about you, and deliver them the next time he was in London. Do you mean to say he has never done it? Not till last autumn, and it was so old I thought nothing more would come of it. A sort of half-Englishman, half-Spaniard. But a faithful fellow and thought wonders of you. When he first came with your message, he had got into a scrape before he could deliver it. He stabbed a man at the docks and had to bolt again, and he fought shy of London for years after that. But to see you like this was the last thing I could dream of. You said not a word of this in your letter. Because I had not got it then... I took it from misery and starvation and living among the savages. I've seen a good deal of the world and met with some wonderful people. How small even London seems to me. Yes, I dare say, and how small the world is. You could tell many a tale, no doubt, but none more wonderful than your own. Do you know who it was that fetched you off, the captain of the Archytus? "'Give me more brandy. It is good enough for that.' "'The great stranger shook himself, though he might have had more manners, "'and his clothes rattled round him like mildewed pea-pods. "'I knew nothing about it at the time, of course, "'but since I came here I know everything. "'Why, it was the man who stepped into my shoes "'and a devilish sight too good to do it. "'Ah, he has had his hair combed once or twice, I doubt.' Better almost have turned up leper at once. How good he was to me. No haughty airs, no shudders, no keep your distance, dog. He was not at all sure of contagion till he looked at his books in the cabin. But it made no difference to him. He could not tell who I was. He took me for a Spaniard. Diaz was the name I went by. But he treated me like a Christian as Christ himself would have treated me. The poor man lifted his hat as he spoke, from his naked yellow head, and the glare of his eyes was clouded. The power to weep was gone, but not the power of things that move it. And he did a good work for himself, he resumed, looking fiercely again at Downey. He did himself a better turn than me, without knowing anything about it. Every one of my troubles has been through that woman. She never knew what a man's wife is. She wanted to be a man and woman, too. The Pulcho Indians would have taught her something, top not come down. Your husband is a leper, and the man you have eaten up for years goes free. I am only waiting till the proper time comes. I have had a fine time of it, and so shall she. But I suppose you don't want to hurt your children. Donovan spoke in a surly voice, for he saw that this man was not one to be soothed. What harm have your children ever done you? By appearing now you would simply starve us, and what could we do to help you then? You have been in London for weeks, I dare say, and you have learned all you could about us. Did you learn that we are living in Fairthorne's house and on Fairthorne's money? And what becomes of that when you turn up? Did you learn that I am likely to marry a lady of great wealth and good position? What becomes of that if you turn up? You have not let my mother know a word as yet? Not I, not a syllable yet, my son. What a strange thing it seems to have a son again. No, I don't want to hurt you or the two girls either. I have managed to get a look at them. How they would have stared if they had guessed it. I consider them to be a credit to me, and I hope they are better than their mother. And you are a credit in a certain way, a strong, plain-spoken fellow. Not much humbug about you, I should say. And, of course, I can't expect much affection. But I dare say you are sorry about your poor father. Father, I am. I am broken down about you. I have always thought well of you and made allowance for you. God knows that I have wanted it, my son. I will do all I can to help you now. I will live in some hole and not show myself for a time, but only for a time, mind you. My revenge I will have when I can't hurt you much. But you must give me money to support me till that day. What will you pay and how long will you want? Three months, perhaps four, and pay two pounds a week. It is all I can afford, for I am awfully hard up. After my marriage, five pounds, if you like. Give me your address. You can have two weeks' money now. It is all I have by me. But don't come here again. These people are very suspicious. I will arrange to meet you somewhere. The poor cripple managed to take the money, and after a few more words departed. Then Bullrag flung the other window up, cast the tumbler out of it, and lighted some pastilles. Then he took a draft of brandy neat, and went upstairs to sit in his bedroom and brood over this calamity. End of chapter 60